It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey now, how was your weekend? We had some great guests on Media Buzz yesterday. If you missed the show, the segments are up online. I had a pretty good weekend, except for the fact that every 10 minutes I was finding about somebody new who had COVID or had been exposed to somebody who had COVID or had COVID in their family. It just goes on and on and on. In fact, one of the women in the makeup room was delayed coming in because she had been exposed. She was able to get a negative test and then she came in. Uh, also, you know, I had a talk with the uh, manager of my local little grocery store who was understandably frustrated and complaining that every day she's promised that the trucks will show up with uh, more food, you know, more produce, more cookies, more Diet Coke, whatever. And for days and days and days that hasn't happened. There are some empty shelves there. Um, she brings in workers and there's nothing for them to unload. Even Trader Joe's has some empty shelves. This supply chain problem seems to suddenly be, you know, on steroids because obviously a lot more workers are out thanks to Omicron. All right, if you wouldn't indulge me in a pet peeve, I just happened on this story uh, yesterday, Sunday's New York Times, and it just goes to show you this sort of unconscious bias sometimes uh, toward government regulation. So here's the headlines. You get an idea where the paper's coming from. New York could make history with a Fashion Sustainability Act. Now, all this is is that uh, Democrats in Albany are proposing this bill. It still has to make it through both chambers. And it would make New York the first state in the country that would effectively hold the biggest brands in fashion to account for their role in climate change. Now, I'm all for combating climate change, and New York, of course, is the fashion capital of the country. But under this proposed law, all the companies, this is the biggest companies, all the big names that you know, uh, have to map a minimum of 50% of their supply chain, starting with the farms where their raw materials originate through factories and shipping. They'd be required to disclose where in that chain they have the greatest social and environmental impact when it comes to, write this down, fair wages, energy, greenhouse gas emissions, water, and chemical management, and make concrete plans to reduce those numbers and also reveal how much... uh, material, how much cotton or leather or polyester they sell. That sounds like a lot of work. And if they break this proposed law, they would be fined up to 2% of their annual revenues. Now, I would think there would be a paragraph in this story somewhere that would say, well, industry didn't think it's such a good idea, or higher costs will be passed on to consumers, or somebody doesn't like this idea. Nothing, not a phrase, not a sentence. It's just New York making history. You know, if I was running a fashion company, I'd have to think twice about whether I wanted to stay in Manhattan if suddenly these onerous regulations were imposed on me. And I'm not an anti-regulation guy. Health, safety, I'm all for it. Um, You know, the fashion industry isn't exempt from regulation, but this is like a laundry, a liberal laundry list. And then the head of the New Standards Institute's court is saying, often there's a knee-jerk reaction by businesses against the idea of regulation. And that's sometimes true. Car companies complain, you know, they can't possibly meet the mileage standards, and then eventually they do. But there are costs to these things. Not even a nod, not even a token sentence. All right, uh, there was a bit of a Twitter war over the weekend. CNN contributor Mary Catherine Hamm, a conservative who once worked at Fox, uh, known her for a long time, she took on her own network. Uh, She was writing or responding to someone who talked about whether the coverage of the January 6th anniversary was partisan. And she recalled having to cover that awful, tragic shooting of congressional Republicans at a baseball practice. Now, Mary Catherine, who at the time 
at least lived one block from the Virginia ball field. She covered that story. She did live shots in there. She says, I remember just getting a lot of coverage. She says the news vans left and the national coverage faded in about 48 hours and comparing it to January 6th. So another guy at CNN, Andrew Kaczynski, does a lot of the fact-checking, challenged her on the level of coverage. He posted a screenshot of her doing a report. She says, yeah, she was asked to talk about something related to that. A couple more go-rounds, and then she hit back. She said, got Jack to say about Cuomo and Tubin, but got to fact-check me when he's got nothing. So she was referring, of course, to CNN firing Andrew Cuomo for improperly helping his brother, for, to CNN suspending for about seven or eight months Jeffrey Tubin for pleasuring himself on a Zoom call, to bring those things up uh, and also implicitly criticize CNN for not doing enough coverage back uh, at that shooting. Um, you know, I haven't gone back and checked the record. Maybe CNN did a lot. But I kind of admire her gumption in standing up for herself and her view of the world against her network. Now, you might have seen over the weekend Alec Baldwin back in the news doing a little uh, interview with the reporters there from behind the wheel of his car. The New York Post has a story on this. He insisted over the weekend that he is complying with the investigation into the fatal shooting on the movie set Rust. But he hasn't yet turned over his cell phone to New Mexico police. Authorities have a warrant for the actor's phone as they look into the sad, sad death of Helena Hutchins, uh, killed by what obviously Baldwin didn't realize was a live round from his prop gun. And he said in this thing, which was uh, posted on Instagram, any suggestion that I am not complying with requests or orders or demands or search warrants about my phone, that's bull s. That's a lie. This is a process. One state makes a request of another state. It takes time. They have to specify what they want. We are 1,000% going to comply with that. He went after the New York Post in this video. Maybe there were no reporters there. Maybe he did it on his own. I'm not sure. Um, saying that its coverage of his failure to turn over his phone to the police investigating the shooting was lies and BS and nonsense. And, of course, the Post gleefully reported all of this. Well, a lot to cover here. So let's go to story number one. Now, this has been, I kind of touched on this on the program yesterday. And I've talked about it a little week on last week's podcast. I kind of a shift in thinking about what is the new normal. I have an After the Buzz video up here on the same topic. That is, you know, we're in this Omicron surge. We hit a million new cases a day this week. Now it's leveled off at, you know, 680,000. The LA Duff's up to about 1,500 a day, which is still, you know, far too many, unacceptable, really. But there's no way to stop every variation of this virus. And so now we have a situation where you don't have the Biden White House saying, you know, we the city's got to shut down, the county's got to shut down, we got to protect people from the hospitals, we need more mandates. You don't have that. But you do, in fact, as referenced by the supply chain issues I talked about with the local grocery store, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, and just about everybody else, you do have the economy being seriously hurt by the fact that a lot of people have the virus and are sidelined by, according to the new CDC guidance, Rochelle Walensky was on Fox News Sunday, you know, again, trying to say she's going to be a better communicator. She'd been on the morning shows on Friday. Um, she's got a long way to go. Let's put it that way. Politico, I think, reporting over the weekend, that she's getting media training. Well, she looked a little crisper in her presentation, but still the, the stuff is so confusing. I do this for a living and I have trouble following it. Anyway, this leads me to a column by Matt Bai in the Washington Post, in which he calls out the Democrats 
And he says the Democrats are going to have to start treating the coronavirus not as the uncontrollable public health crisis it used to be, circa 2020, but as the public policy crisis it has now become. Uh, He's saying, look, uh, this is like a flu. It's very unpleasant. I know because I have it. I mean, this just goes to show you, uh, you know, I talked to Dana Perino last week. Could you come on the show? Well, no, I'm just getting over COVID and she wasn't going to be available logistically. Uh, just, you know, it's just tearing through, it's certainly tearing through the media world. And Matt Bai writes about it and he says, look, I have it too. So believe me, I'm sympathetic. This is no fun. Nobody wants to get it. But he goes on to say that too much public policy is being driven by the people who are unvaccinated, the 35, 38%, who for whatever combination of reasons don't want to get these shots. He says they're like unrepentant smokers. We've spent decades telling them they might get lung cancer. We plaster warnings everywhere. But you know what? All of us, he says, get to make our own idiotic choices. We don't shut down the highway because a bunch of yahoos are riding their motorcycles without helmets. And now he says we've got these new antiviral drugs so you can be treated. Even if you're unvaccinated, there's now some treatment for COVID-19. Didn't exist as recently as a couple of months ago. And then he comes to President Biden. If Biden's going to beat the pandemic, he's going to have to acknowledge the new reality, which is that our public policy is way too weighted toward a bunch of people who made the wrong choice. But, and here's the kicker and here's the rub, it's Biden's own Democratic constituencies, and you probably know what's coming. Teachers unions, local governments, particularly in blue cities and blue states, uh, ultra-leftist Trump haters who, in his words, refuse to let go of the culture war over the virus. I would simply amend that to say both sides are not letting go of the culture war over the virus. Um, but they would continue to hold the country hostage to what is now a manageable public health risk. Biden needs to take these people on and steer his party toward a more sensible course. Now, the implication here is if he does not do that, then people who basically you know, want the schools to remain open, and that's where the teachers union come in, comes in, particularly in a place like Chicago where they're on strike, and that's where you know local governments with, you know, you can't go into the following restaurants unless you have a vax card and all of that. If the Democratic Party increasingly becomes identified as the shut it down and restricted party, even though uh, there's obviously some risk in not shutting down. But look, you know, you take a risk when you walk across the street. I'm increasingly coming to this view because, yes, thankfully, Omicron is more um, is a milder version for most people, less so if you're unvaccinated. But we just, you know, this can't go on forever. We're two friggin' years into this pandemic, and there has to be more of a balance between the economic and educational and mental health needs of the whole population and trying to keep people safe. I mean, I'm all for keeping people safe, but we can't have zero risk. We probably can't can't get to zero coronavirus, not given the fact that it's a global pandemic. And I thought it was a good column by Matt Bai pointing out that this, the Democratic Party could own this. And I don't know if this president has the inclination or the um, determination to take on Democratic interest groups uh, on this sensitive matter. Let me move on to number two. I mentioned Michelle Walensky being on Fox News Sunday um, and being asked about a whole lot of stuff. Um, And also, I mean, the Washington Post had a story also yesterday saying she held her first solo COVID-19 news conference since becoming the chief of the Centers for Disease 
control and prevention. She said it'll be the first of many. Well, first of all, that's a little bit of hype because what it was was a conference call with reporters. So I'm not saying that's nothing, but you know, she's not in front of the camera uh, so that the clips can be used and people can tune in at the time or watch it online or watch it uh, on news shows. Uh, you know, it's a phone call. That's what it is. It's a phone call. So uh, Washington Post, and this follows a critical story of Walensky in the New York Times. The briefing comes at a precarious moment for Walensky, a highly regarded infectious diseases physician who has come under intense criticism for failing to communicate CDC's often changing guidance. Clearly, I have no doubt that she's a good doctor. I have no doubt that her heart is in the right place. But the fact is, she's just, it's, it's, it's a morass. It's a mess. Um, lately with this, oh, you know, 10 days that we were telling you to isolate, nah, five will be fine. And you don't really have to get a negative test. Well, wait a second, wait a second. Maybe you should get a negative test. We're going to reconsider it. Like nobody can follow all this. Nobody knows what's going on. And also nobody is compelled to listen to it. Back to the post story. At times, her guidance has been at odds with that of other senior administration officials, most notably Anthony Fauci. Uh, some outside experts have called on Biden to change the agency's leadership. In other words, dump her. Administration officials say the president has no such plans, that ousting her would be ill-advised with so many new cases going on, frustration mounting inside the administration. So this is, you know, it's a bit of finger pointing. It's a bit of blame shifting because, look, Rochelle Walensky, I just think she needs a better communications director. And that person should go on TV and try to sell this thing. I mean, you don't have Joe Biden doing every briefing uh, the way Donald Trump did. You have Fauci and others. And then you have Jen Psaki. Uh, taking reporters' questions. I think, by, as everybody knows, I think Biden should talk to reporters much more often, but you don't want to have him be the daily briefer. Um, and so the problem with these stories, in my view, it's almost like the journalists are twisting themselves into a pretzel. And here's what I mean. If the CDC is constantly changing guidance and nobody knows what the hell's going on, if the head of the CDC uh, is a poor communicator, isn't consulting with others, mixed messages coming out. It's true. She goes on the air and says X. And then Fauci comes on and says, no, I don't think X. X is not a good idea. And then the Surgeon General, Surgeon General uh, Vivek Murthy comes on and he says, well, we really want to do Y. Okay, of course people are going to be confused. And not everybody's sitting there watching TV all the time or on their Twitter feed. They have jobs. They have lives. Um... Jody Lennard, a physician who worked uh, as a communications advisor for the WHO, says Walensky has nothing to lose by putting herself out there. Um, here's a good quote. I'm not worried about the White House throwing the CDC under the bus because the CDC is already under the bus. Okay, my point is, doesn't President Biden bear ultimate responsibility for this? And I mean, This goes beyond the just colossal error and mistake of not having more tests available. You just, you know, I talked about Steve Ducey having uh, COVID-19. He talked about it on Fox and Friends. His whole family has it. His son, Peter Ducey, has it. He'll be going back to the White House soon. He said he was told it would take seven days to get a test and seven days to get the results. Well, if two weeks goes by, you don't know what to do. Should you go back to work? Should you be isolated? Should you be isolated from your family? Should you be seeing neighbors? It's just a colossal mess. We still don't have the first of the 500 million tests that Biden ordered. But my main point is this. If the administration is providing confusing guidance, if the White House, the FDA, the CDC, and the Surgeon General can't seem to get it together. By the way, I think this goes to performance, not just PR. But if all those things are true, I mean, the buck stops at 1600 Penn. President Biden should knock some heads together and say, you know, we're going to settle on one message. 
We're going to have uh, a chief messenger. Each agency will have a chief messenger. And this is not, you know, fiddling with the science because they've already done that. Going from 10 to 5 days wasn't based on any new scientific data. It was based on trying to make sure that more businesses don't get shut down, that more truck drivers don't call in sick to work after 5 days so that we can get food to the groceries, that more schools don't close because the teachers can't go back, and that more airplanes can't fly, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of cancellations. So I just think the media are kind of ticked off at the situation. Everybody's now doing the kick Walensky pieces, and I'm not saying it's not justified, but there is the President of the United States, who's ultimately in charge of this. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Number three, this kind of slides right into it since we're talking about COVID-19. A lot of people were kind of stunned at what Justice Sonia Sotomayor said during oral arguments that the Supreme Court held, this was on Thursday, uh, about some of the Biden mandates. And it looked like from the oral arguments, I don't like to predict what any court will do, that, that some of the Biden mandates may be curtailed or thrown out by the Supreme Court based on the justices' questioning. That remains to be seen. We probably won't find out for a while. But during those oral arguments, Sotomayor said, we have hospitals that are almost at full, full capacity with people severely ill on ventilators. We have over 100,000 children, which we've never had before, in serious condition, and many on ventilators. She compared human beings spewing virus to machines spewing sparks. And she offered these numbers as a rationale for why the Biden administration is legally entitled to have an employer vaccine mandate. But a lot of that was just false. Here's PolitiFact saying her claim is not supported by data. For example, the actual number um, which uh, Sotomayor cited is about 5%. 5% of the 100,000 kids she says are seriously ill, it's only 5,000. That's not great, but it's not 100,000. The American Academy of Pediatrics specifically points out it appears that severe illness due to COVID-19 is uncommon among children. And that while the number of children in hospital who are positive for COVID has risen with Omicron, AP and others have said this does not mean they're hospitalized for covid some might be, some might have COVID while they other have other problems, you know, problems, pre-existing uh, problems with uh, their blood or their heart or whatever it might be. So you've got to be careful about that. Uh, the head of critical care at Seattle Children's Hospital is quoted as saying, they are here for other issues but happen to have tested positive. So how is it that a justice of the Supreme Court who has to rule on this case could be so far off. I mean, she has a staff. She has law clerks. Um, Look, I don't expect any justice to be an expert on every subject area that comes before him or her. Obviously, they have to rule on a whole wide range, particularly complicated business cases. You know, they can't possibly be expert at everything. But they do get research from their clerks. They are supposed to read the relevant case law. And if it's a public health matter, and obviously this is one of the most important cases in the country, this is not some minor thing where maybe she was caught napping, they need to know the facts, the basic facts about how many people, children, whoever, are in serious condition, are in hospitals. A lot of hospitals are filled, but but more so than not in the ICU units with unvaccinated 
people, although, because, you know, this goes back to every time I talk about vaccinations on the air and all these people writing it, well, wasn't it supposed to stop? These vaccines have failed. Wasn't it supposed to stop people from getting uh, COVID? No. Yes, you could find the odd person saying it. I know Rachel Maddow said it once. Nobody who has any scientific smarts has ever said, if you get this vaccine, you will never, ever, ever get COVID. Now, it was very rare to get COVID before the Omicron surge, uh, which seems either um, to have where uh, the vaccines have little effect on it or no effect whatsoever. But the thing is, what the vaccines do, which is miraculous, which is life-saving, is that if you get it, it's not pleasant. It's awful. Everybody who says it, some say it's mild. It's like a really bad cold. Others say, you know, they're up all night and they have headaches and so forth. Dana Perino said it was the sickest she's ever felt um, on the air on the five the other day. But you don't, in the vast, overwhelming number of cases, you don't have to go to the hospital if you're vaccinated and you don't die. That's not nothing. So, you know, people who say, well, it means the vaccines don't work, they don't know what they're talking about, or they're framing it in a way where they're trying to make uh, a cultural argument. Now, mandates, that's a different question. That's a legitimate thing. And I just, I think Justice Sotomayor, who I'm sure is concerned about her public image, should put out a statement saying, you know what? I was wrong. I'm sorry. And here are the real facts. Um, Because this, you know, this wasn't, this isn't a close call. She was completely and totally false. Politico is not the only one. Politico fact, I should say, is not the only one that says so. And this is a problem. All right. Uh, Number four, this doesn't seem like the world's biggest problem, but it has become an international incident. If you've been following this, if you've been following me here on the Buzz Meter, Novak Djokovic, for days, got into the situation where he flew to Australia. He was going to play in the Australian Open. It's one of the Grand Slam tournaments. He's got 20 Grand Slam wins. If he gets one more, he breaks a tie with Federer and I think Nadal. Uh, also, last year, he came within one match of winning all four Grand Slam tournaments. He, If he doesn't play in Australia, he can't do that again this year. He got an exemption, a medical exemption from the Australian Open saying, you know what, you can come here. They got him a temporary visa. And then people in Australia went nuts and said, why, why does Djokovic get to play by a separate set of rules? He got there. The Australian government was not happy. They sent him to a special detention hotel. Let's just say it's not a five-star hotel. Uh, Serbia, where uh, Djokovic is from, is complaining about you know fleas and bed bugs or whatever. And rather than just go home, he's there appealing the ruling, staying in this hotel, not explaining himself. He put out an Instagram video thanking his fans. You know, I, I make this point a lot with major league athletes. This is a guy who's made millions and millions and millions of dollars. He happens to be a tremendous tennis player. He has some obligation to talk to the press, talk to reporters, explain his position. Why wasn't he getting vaccinated? So here's the kicker. And, and, and the Australian government and the Serbian government were in this absolute war of words. I mean, I'm talking about at the foreign ministry level. Uh, oh, he was lured there and he's being treated. It's a witch hunt, says Serbia. This is getting pretty ugly. So we find out on Saturday, for the first time in a legal filing, again, Djokovic hasn't, you know, gone before the cameras, hasn't even put out her statement. But in this court filing, Djokovic says the reason he asked for the vaccine mandate exception is that last month he got COVID. Here's the exact quote. I explained that I had been recently affected with COVID in December 2021. And on this basis, I was entitled to a medical exemption in accordance with Australian government rules and guidance. 
He said he told the Australian border force that I correctly made my Australian travel declaration, otherwise satisfied all requirements to lawfully enter on my visa. He said he tested positive on December 16th, but by December 30th, he had not had a fever or any symptoms of COVID for the past 72 hours. So here's what I have to say about this. If you're as rich as Djokovic, can't you afford a PR advisor who would tell you what a mess you've made of things? On what planet do you let this escalate into a diplomatic war between two countries and not put this information out? I mean, I look at it differently now that I know he had COVID last month. It seems a little bit like the ca- a case of, as Griff Jenkins said on my show, you know, rich athlete acting entitled, like he doesn't have to play by the same rules as everyone else. And at least a reasonable request saying, look, he just had it, therefore he's got the antibodies, therefore maybe it's not a good idea to get vaccinated so soon. Why would you not say this on day one and at least let people chew over that and look, make it look a little bit like, less like you're a jerk? This is a colossal uh, PR disaster. And even if the Australian government now reverses itself and gets to play, I mean, the damage I think has been done. And again, a, a lot of these players just, you know, and you go through the list, Aaron Rodgers, who misled everybody with the Green Bay Packers, and Kylie Irving and the Brooklyn Nets. Like, you know, they don't want to get the vaccine fight. Antonio Brown blamed the media for making an issue out of the fact that he got a fake vaccine ID card. And of course, he's now off the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because he stripped off his jersey and walked off in the middle of the game against the New York Jets the previous weekend. So I just, like if Djokovic had just had the PR sense to talk to reporters about this, issue a statement, somehow put this out, the whole debate would have been different. Maybe the whole, you know, well, you can't do say that about our country. The whole war of words might not have happened. I mean, I half expected Serbia and Australia to get into a shooting war, or at least pulling the ambassadors. So we'll see where the debate goes from here, and we'll see whether he gets to get out of that hotel and play in the Australian Open. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. And number five. Now, you all heard me talk about Ruth Shalit. Now, Ruth Shalit Barrett. Uh, back when she wrote this piece for The Atlantic, which The Atlantic had to retract. Now, I know Ruth Shalit because I reported on her. In fact, I interviewed her on television back in the 1990s. She was a reporter for, for The New Republic. And she was, at the time, a serial plagiarist. She took other people's words and represented them as her own. She had these sort of lame excuses as to how this happened. Oh, it was just an accident. And she basically, you know, uh, kind of kept a very low profile in journalism for a lot of years. The Atlantic piece that she did was a big, lengthy piece. was going to be her comeback. It was about sports, in fact. It was about Ivy League students playing uh, soccer. I forget what the sport was. So the Atlantic looked into it and had to retract it in a lengthy editor's note, saying we can't stand by this story that Ruth Shalit Barrett had lied to its fact-checkers, had encouraged a source to lie to its fact-checkers, and that um, it went into the the plagiarism of the New Republic. It said that it was a mistake to list her byline as Ruth S. Barrett, and it should have said Ruth Shalit so people would know about her history. So now, over the weekend, Barrett filed a million-dollar lawsuit against the Atlantic magazine. Uh, uh, Talk about being in a hole and keep digging. She wants to relitigate this now. She says that the Atlantic 
has smeared her reputation. But listen to this. She says there is one falsehood in the Atlantic article, the only one she admits to. Uh, the central character, who was a mom in the uh, piece, she added, she admits this, Ruth Shalit Barrett added a non-existent son to the family of, quote, Sloan, which was a pseudonym, at the request of the anonymous source to help disguise her identity. I'm sorry, you can't do that. You can't make up a character and present it as fact. You can do lots of things. You can withhold information, you know, perhaps to try to keep the source's identity. But there's a line you can't cross. So I did that. I just made up the sun. That's okay. And then she says, well, um, the Atlantic actually, through its lawyers, asked her to, to change a quote to shield uh, the identity of the source. To which the Atlantic says, our lawyers, this is to the New York Times, have never in this case or any other, advise editors to alter direct quotes. This is a basic journalistic principle, of course. We do not alter quotes. So Barrett is saying, look, uh, she was acting in accordance with the ethical precepts of journalism in making up the, the phony son of the mother whose identity was being shielded. She said there were a couple other inaccuracies that were so trivial they shouldn't even have been mentioned. Now, in its thousand-word editor's note, the Atlantic said, you know, it had talked to 40 people and gone through the piece, and that's where it says, hey, Ruth Shalit Barrett lied to us, misled us. Uh, but Barrett, in the lawsuit, says the magazine is destroying her journalistic career by what it said publicly, that she was smeared. Wow. Uh, I don't know. How do you think this case is going to come out? So the Atlantic spokeswoman says, we completely reject the allegations, believe the suit is meritless, we'll be filing a motion to dismiss, and we are comp confident we will ultimately prevail. Uh, also, um, Barrett's lawyers said they offered a chance for the Atlantic to settle if they would pay uh, Ruth's legal fees, which are about 120000 bucks. So I just, I'm just flabbergasted by this, having had my own go-rounds with Ruth Shalit Barrett why, after a magazine has called you out, retracted the piece, said you lied, said you encouraged a source to lie, why would you go to court over this? How is that going to salvage your reputation? It just brings the spotlight back to it. And um, I just don't think it was the wisest decision in the history of journalism. Well, once again, thanks for listening. Again, hope you had a good weekend. Uh, we always appreciate the chance to uh, talk to you here. Our traffic has been going up, which I take is a good sign traffic goes down. Maybe I'll make these shorter. Uh, we'll be back here tomorrow. See you then with more BuzzMeter. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.